Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories recorded live on our unblushing theme, Stories That Still Haunt. This episode highlights our curated stories. We need your support. Text the code STORYPOD to 44321. We are back at the Visual Arts Collective in the Searle Mitchell Live Work Create District of Garden City, Idaho. I'm Artistic Director Jody Eichelberger. We're exploring those stories that still rattle our chains from our featured storytellers, Marina Wool, Ben Hess, and Alice Nelson. Boo! It's Late Night Stories. Marina Wool. Good evening. So, I don't have nightmares often, but I always have the same ones, right? The first one started when I was about 10. There are zombies. I am defending like a house or a building, very sort of like a Walking Dead style. The second one started when I was a teenager and I am trapped in a sort of like tri-wizarding cup type hedge maze. And I, but there is like a scoreboard clock that I can always see above me counting down that never gets to zero. The last of my uh, nightmares is started about three years ago. I will wake up in a cold sweat, gasping for air, haunted by the time that I overdressed to a wedding. (laughs) The wedding in question was my college friend, Allison. Um, Yes, we were friends and ran in the same groups, but she had a very different experience than I did. She came from a very prominent family, got into an exclusive sorority as a legacy, and was just kind of more comfortable around what I call stupid money. (laughs) So I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is a private school in Philadelphia, and there was a lot of that there. Um, And you know, we're talking about rich people that it just totally changes your perspective of the universe, right? Like these guys are walking around on a different plane. And it's not just like the fun stuff, right? Like the jets and the cars and the penthouses. It is, you see them and they walk through the universe with a sense of certainty that is in their bones. Like they know that the world could and probably is ending and they would be fine, probably in a bunker somewhere. And I don't know about you, but I find that sense of like surety of your place in the world deeply intoxicating. (laughs) Because I did not have that, 
right? I grew up in Colorado with what I think is a very sort of like middle of the road, middle of the country type of upbringing, except for both of my parents are native to New York City and moved out uh, before I was born. And I think they always had it in their head that they were gonna move back, but it just kind of became one of those things that didn't happen. And so our household had this very like eastward orientation, right? Like my mom never lost her accent. She sounds like Fran Drescher. Uh, we had a framed map of the New York City subway in our living room. And like back east was almost held with this sort of like religious reverence, right? It's like not just where you went to go and be successful. It was the only place where your success counted. Everywhere else was just trying to be that. So somewhere around middle school, myself as a very high achieving, validation seeking young woman, got it in my head that I was gonna go to a fancy pants East Coast school if it killed me. So I showed up on Penn's campus with zero clue of what to expect. I met Allison and the rest of our friends. And you know, it's interesting, just like any other sort of social group, they have this language that is very nuanced of these tells and signals where they suss out whether or not you're supposed to be there. And for women, most of that revolves around just these beautiful, luxurious clothes, right? Like in the handbags and the shoes and all of the labels are in French and Italian. And the best I could do was make sure I knew how to pronounce them correctly. So we would go out most nights to clubs and get bottle service and I would wear my knockoff dresses and pretend that I understood everybody's accents until dawn. And we would make up for it during finals, pulling all-nighters with Adderall prescriptions that were not ours <laughs> and smoking every hour until I would roll into my 9 a.m final smelling like a campfire, right? It was very like Lindsay Lohan meets Ivy League. <laughs> and as you can imagine, that kind of lifestyle is not great when you don't have the luxury of a trust fund. And I ended up mostly just spending way too much time drinking and nursing a pretty solid eating disorder. So. By the time that I needed to graduate, during the Great Recession, I tried to find myself a job and that worked out about as well as you think it would. I boomeranged back home, feeling that I had lost my like one shot at upward mobility, right? So 10 years later, my husband and I get this very elegant and tasteful invitation to Allison's wedding. And I was honestly a little surprised, right? Like I did not do a great job of keeping in touch with a lot of my classmates. I was doing that thing where I was ashamed that I was not quote unquote successful. So I was hiding until I had some point in the future where I was making up the ground that I lost. And when I got the invite, 
I decided this was my chance at redemption, right? Like I cultivated this fantasy that if I showed up looking enough like the part that they would welcome me back into the upper echelons and the life that I missed out on would finally begin, which I am aware is insane. <laughs> so Allison's wedding rolls around and you know, I had rented, because there was no way I was gonna buy, several new outfits that were being very well-reviewed by the other attendees. I thought I was gonna pull this thing off, right? Until what is the opening scene of my nightmare. I am walking across just a perfectly manicured lawn, and I approach the like Southern Belle family friend person who became my wedding friend at the rehearsal dinner the night before. And the look on her face will be forever burned into my subconscious. I knew I had immediately fucked up, <laughs> right? Because the thing about weddings is it is this very sort of like regimented vestige of a lot of the protocol and etiquette that you would only see in like period pieces, right? Like there's everything is, goes in a certain order. Everything is very intentional because you're supposed to have thought about this day your entire life. And for that reason, every, everything means something. And I knew this, my mom was old school. She drilled this shit into me. So when I got the Southern Bells look, I realized that in my craziness, even though the event said black tie, when your ceremony is at two o'clock in the afternoon, yeah. <laughs> You do not go all out, right? And there is this phrase that says, money talks, but wealth whispers. And my gold embroidered floor length gown should have been kicking and screaming on the floor like I wanted to in that moment. I had overheard the bride's high school friends in the row behind me talking about how they would have worn pajamas in reference to my outfit. I totally fixated on my faux pas. I felt like I couldn't redeem myself. I could feel myself sinking into inferiority and wanted to run until the cutting of the cake, which by the way, is the time that you're allowed to leave. And then I boomerang back home, feeling totally defeated again. It was a few months after that that the pandemic started. It was a few months after that that my then husband asked me for a divorce. And I don't think those things are unrelated, right? Like it was the same sort of insecurity that led me to wear a dress that I shouldn't have been wearing, as stay in a marriage that I shouldn't have been in, as go to a school that I probably shouldn't have gone to. And I don't know. I moved out to Boise after my marriage ended to move in with my best friend. And we'll see what happens. 
right? Like, I'm happy to report that this summer I bought my first pair of Tevas. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, I've realized that this thing has become my weird little coping mechanism for reconciling what is like a constellation of insecurities and geographic elitism, apparently. <laughs> so maybe, you know, telling my, you know, I think, let me back up. And now I live in Boise and I'm overdressed everywhere I go, right? <laughs> right? And so, but it has become this coping mechanism that I have developed. And so I'm buying my Tevas and I'm wearing my hoodies to dinner every once in a while. And one day, maybe, I will have come to terms with where my life ended up versus where I envisaged. Maybe one day I will figure out what I'm doing and not care what I'm wearing while I'm doing it. Thank you. Ben Hess. Don't touch the mic. That's what she was telling me. <laughs> In case you were wondering, like, what kind of behind the scenes, how do you make the sausage stuff, what's going on? Um, I'm Ben Hess, and um, I am haunted by a lifetime of memories that occurred over a month. Uh, in April of 2004, I was in the Marines, and I was a fire team leader in an infantry unit deployed in Iraq. And at one point, we were tasked with uh, basically attacking and taking the city of Al Fallujah, which is a city that just was a hotbed of insurgency. And I remember arriving to the city at dawn, and we had already been deployed to Iraq for maybe a month at that point, and the sun hadn't come up yet. And the thing about Iraq is that it's flat, so a city just starts and then stops. So I could see the edge of the city from the outside of it. It looked like a painting on an all old like Hollywood backdrop on a studio. And, you know, the Army and the Air Force had already begun bombing it and all that stuff, and it just, it was on fire. And I could see it in front of me, and I knew I was about to go in there. And I could feel these really uncomfortable feelings running through me, running through my body. I could feel my heart pounded my ears and I could feel my chest get tight. And what bugged me about it 
at that moment, even in that moment, knowing I was about to go in that city was why that feeling I was feeling was so familiar. And it bugged me, but then we went, we went into the city and I didn't have a lot of time to really think about that. And then eventually, about two weeks in, we had worked our way to a sort of a road where we sort of got stopped from moving in and there was a lot of a lot of fighting and I have a lot of memories from that period of time that are all mixed up and a lot of chaotic and a lot of them I, I call them uh, looking through uh, or emerald colored glasses because of all those memories that are in night vision goggles and they're all really uh, they're like two-dimensional there's no depth so it feels like even more inhuman and I all those memories when I think about chasing guys down through these green-colored memories, that feeling is there. That feeling is laced in every one of those memories, and I don't, I didn't understand why for a really long time. And I remember at one point when we had gotten stopped from pushing through the city, uh, you know, we had taken a lot of casualties. And you had to ensure that the enemy didn't come in behind the line to retake the ground that you had already taken. So you'd have to do foot security patrols, squad patrols, like 12 guys, and go on these nice little strolls <laughs> through Fallujah. And they had gotten through every time. And so on those patrols, we would draw straws to see who would go because it wasn't a matter of when or it wasn't a matter of if you'd get in a gunfight, it was a matter of when. So every time I went on that patrol, you know, it was just two hours of waiting. Just waiting for someone to shoot at me. And I still had that feeling. And I remember walking in the streets of Fallujah. I'm 21 years old. I, you know, I was just falling asleep in physics class like three years before that. And I've got a weapon strapped. And I remember like the thinking in the words, not even abstractly about the idea, why the fuck is this so familiar? Why do I know what this feels like? I'd never been in a gunfight before. And it's been almost 20 years since Fallujah. And since then, I developed an enormous drinking habit I fathered two daughters before I had the wisdom or the stability to do that right. I've straight walked out of jobs because I didn't like the way someone was talking to me. And I've burnt more bridges than I could even dream to build. I get suicidal thoughts and I have a lot of nightmares. And I deal with all that, and I think about all that all the time. And a lot of that had to do with me sort of thinking of myself as a statistic. Like, I'm an alcoholic combat veteran that has trouble sleeping and has bad nightmares. You could almost, I'm almost a cardboard cutout for the VA suicide helpline, you know? And so I relegated to myself that that's just how it is. But I was so plagued by that question about why these feelings felt so familiar because I thought for years that Iraq really fucked me up. 
but I needed to know the answer to those questions. Why are these ghosts so fucking familiar? Why do I recognize them? And I do have a lot of nightmares, and I have night terrors, and I remember my very first night terror. I remember the first nightmare, night terror I ever had. I was four years old, and I was sleeping in my bed, and I was looking up at the ceiling, and the Wicked Witch of the West poured out of the ceiling, and she, she was grabbing at me with her long, slender fingers and laughing. And it was, I was wide awake, and it was real as night as day to my little four-year-old brain. And I remember tearing out of the bedroom. And it was, that was the first night terror I remember, and I've had plenty since. And it occurred to me, I've had weird nightmares and night terrors my whole life, way before combat. I, it had been a part of my life way before that. And I had no idea. And there was another memory that I remembered of another dream that I started looking at and taking it apart from different angles. And I remember this dream from when I was a teenager. And I dreamt that I got in a fight with my parents, probably over grades or something. And I remember screaming at them, and they're screaming back, and I'm in tears, because that's always how they went. And then I remember you know, being like, you know, fuck you, parental units, or whatever we said in the 90s, and I went. And I ran into the bathroom and I shut myself in the bathroom and this is all within the dream and I was like so angry and so upset and for whatever reason I was like, you know what, fuck this bathroom and fuck this mirror, you know, that just happened to be right there. And I pissed all over the mirror in my dream. I peed all over it, just like this mirror is stupid. And then I woke up and I had peed the bed, which was really awkward. And when I was trying to dig for the answer to those questions, and I was digging and digging and digging and digging into memories and digging into dreams. It occurred to me suddenly, like a weight of bricks, that if, like, if you're dealing with a mirror in a dream, I mean, this is obvious to me now, but if you're thinking about a mirror in a dream, it's never just a fucking mirror. Because I was peeing all over myself. Because I hated myself. Why do I hate myself? Where did the fuck does that come from? Then I remembered that night terror from when I was four years old and the Wicked Witch of the West came pouring out of the ceiling. Because there's a second half to it that I remembered that I just completely blocked out. And the second half was running down the hallway, pounding on my parents' door, watching the door swing open, getting screamed at, lifted up by one hand and beat with the other, dropped down in the hallway and the door slammed on me. And in my four-year-old brain, that Wicked Witch of the West is still down the hallway in the darkness. And there's no one to protect me. And that's when I realized that I grew up abused. And those were the ghosts that felt so familiar. Those were the ghosts I recognized when I, in Iraq. That I could feel the same thing in a combat area of operations that I did as a child in my own home. And when I realized that, I realized that I had power over it. I wrestled in high school. And I lost almost every single match for all four years. And it was devastating. I lost every single fucking match. I mean, look at me. I'm built like a basketball player. Come on, what was I doing? <laughs> but I ended up realizing something about myself through wrestling. Because no matter, I lost every single match by points. I never got pinned. All four years, outmatched, outclassed, thrown around the mat, owned 
by fucking all these country boys. You know the guys, they're stocky. They just toss you around, low center of gravity. But I never got pinned. And I realized, fuck it, let's do it. Let's get into this thing. And then I realized that I could see the same terror in my children's eyes when I would spank them and yell at them that I experienced when I was a kid. And then I realized that I get really mad at them when I'm hungover or when I'm drunk. And then I realized that, and it just started, I just started fixing shit. I stopped drinking, I stopped yelling at my children, I stopped hitting my children. And I started to take steps towards loving myself instead of peeing all over that kid in the mirror. Oh, wow. So I'm at a point now where I'm realizing that this story isn't over. This is like just the beginning of it. And I'm starting to see all these opportunities open up. And I don't know where it's going to go, to be honest with you. And I'm excited about that. But you'll know how I wanted to end if you come across my grave someday. And where the headstone is, there is just a giant exclamation point. <laughs> and then it's freeze-framed like the end of that movie we all love. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Hess. the beautiful and brilliant Alice Nelson. <laughs> I'm a diva, I needed the mic at my height. Hello everybody. So, just gonna start my story. It was the first day of seventh grade, and we had to meet at a bus stop on the corner of Hilltop and 47th at 6.30 in the morning to catch a yellow bus that was gonna take us to John J. Pershing Junior High. Now, I was 11 years old, out of elementary school, going into junior high. That was scary enough, but we were gonna go to junior high in a school clear across town. So there was about five of us at this bus stop. We were familiar with each other from the neighborhood, but we weren't friends. All of my friends were gonna to go to Samuel Gompers, which was catty corner to where we were standing. So I could see the school that I wanted to go to, that my older brothers and sisters had gone to, and that all my friends were going to, while I stood there in the near darkness waiting for the bus to come. And it was, it was some nervous energy in the air. You know, you could understand these kids are going to this new school. So we, we tried to joke around with each other and play around, but everything felt forced. By the time a bus, the bus arrived, my, my hands were shaking, so I shoved them into my pockets so no one would see. The bus driver was this heavyset Italian woman named Paulette. Paulette always smelled like cigarettes, and she had the dark lips and yellow teeth of a longtime smoker. She was New Jersey born and proud, and she'd tell anyone whether you asked her or not. So we got on the bus, and, and as soon as we got on the bus, you could hear the radio playing, and she was playing 101.5 KGB FM, which was the rock station in town. And almost immediately, there was a revolt. Two of the girls, whose names I couldn't tell you if you held a gun to my head, decided that they wanted Paulette to play the soul station in town. So they were demanding this and, and kind of yelling at her, which was kind of rude. And Paulette let them get their, 
you know, let them, you know, get their things out, get their feelings out. And she was going to tell you right then and there who was in charge of that bus. And it was, wasn't us, it was her. So she looked in the rearview mirror at us in the back and she said, sit down. Everybody sat down. I went, got a window seat and this, the other two girls sat on the aisle across from me and they were still complaining about Paulette not changing the station. You know, they felt that since there were black kids on board, we should be able to hear what we wanted to hear. But I didn't really care. I was probably the only one on that bus that was happy with KGB being on there. But I could not say a word to any of these girls because then they would call me the O word. And the O word is Oreo. It's kind of a derogatory term that black people have for other black people that they don't feel is black enough. I, was, I would be blackish if I had said I liked KGB. So I sat there and I didn't say anything to them. So we're driving down the street and she's going on the route to pick up the other kids. And a song came on that I heard. I don't remember what it was, but I just started singing, you know, lightly like I did when the songs came on that I liked. And I could feel them staring at me, glaring at me. So I turned to look. And they had this look on their face. And if any of you have any black friends, you know, you've seen this look before. It was like. <laughs> and so I said, you know, what's the deal? And they said, why are you listening to that white music? You think you white? And, you know, how do you, how do you answer that question? What do you say to that? I just liked music because it was music. So I probably said something like, I, I just like the song. And I expected that they would call me the O word because I'd been called that before. I was used to it. I just didn't want that name following me from elementary school to junior high. So I sat there waiting for it to come, but they just whispered to each other and giggled. And I turned back to the window and looked out as the neighborhood passed by and she picked up the other kids. And soon the small houses of Southeast San Diego where we lived gave way to the bigger, more pristine houses of San Carlos, which was the suburb where Pershing was. The bus was full and there was a chaotic energy on board the bus as well. I think all of us were scared. We just didn't want to admit that we were. So Paulette let us have our anxiety-inducing yells and screams as long as we didn't get out of the bus seat. And we had a right to be scared. We didn't know it yet, but we did. So as we turned the corner to the school, there was a large crowd of people out front. And I just thought it was parents dropping their kids off. It was the first day of school. But as we got closer and she pulled up and parked in front of the school, I knew that, that th these weren't parents dropping off their kids. This was the faces of angry people looking at us, protesting that we were coming to their school. So we sat there, not knowing what to do. The bus was silent, but Paulette, she, she wasn't having any of it. She got up, opened the bus door, and she asked the parents to move out of the way because they were blocking the doors. And so she said, come on, kids, one by one, and created this sort of barrier between us, 30 or so kids on board, and these angry parents yelling at 11 and 12-year-olds to go back to your neighborhoods to go to school. <clears throat> and as we made our way through this angry mob, we saw it for the first time. And by it, I mean the graffiti that greeted us nearly every Monday morning that first year. The school did a half-assed job of covering it up. They just, it was like one thin coat of white paint over this black spray paint, allowing the words to bleed through in defiance. Niggers, go home. Niggers, go back to Africa. With a swastika at the end, of course, to punctuate their point. This was 1977, and we were the first ever voluntary integration program we were part of the first ever voluntary integration program of the San Diego Unified School District. 
It was 1977, like I said, 23 years after Brown versus the Board of Education, and San Diego hadn't done a damn thing to integrate their schools. It took a lawsuit and the California State Supreme Court order before they did anything to get any kind of program together to alleviate racial segregation. And all of us kids on those dozens of buses that pulled up to Pershing that day, we were volunteered either by our parents or by teachers to come to this school. It was a 45 minute ride one way to come to a school that didn't want us. And the weird thing was, to me, was the school never said anything about the graffiti. Not that day, not ever. They didn't say to us, oh, this is, we're gonna look into this, we're gonna see if this is never gonna happen again, or if it does, we'll cover it up to make sure you don't see it. They didn't say, these words don't speak for us, you're very welcomed here. They, they handled it like they handled everything difficult at that school the entire three years I was there with silence. Now maybe, maybe they didn't know how to handle it, it was a new program. Maybe they, they didn't know what to do, or, or maybe, just maybe, they hoped that we'd see those words and we'd be so scared that we'd never come back. Which would have been fine by me because I didn't want to go there in the first place. It was my mother and my sixth grade teacher who got together and decided that I was going to go to Pershing. Not to the school that my older sisters and brothers went to, not to the school that my friends went to, but to this school. Because if you believe that separate but equal is, is equal, it's not. The schools in my neighborhood were ill-equipped and and. We didn't have any of the books or any of the money that the schools in, in San Carlos had. So I knew my mother was doing it because she thought it was the best thing for me, but I resented her nonetheless. I resented having to go to this place, having her and my teacher make that decision right when I'm standing there. They didn't ask me, they didn't talk to me, they didn't find out how I felt about it. I was a fucking ghost. They didn't hear me and they didn't see me. So I, I resented her. But I didn't give her any trouble. I didn't, I didn't refuse to go. My mom was in a miserable marriage to my father, so I didn't want to add any more to her plate. He had taken a hands-off approach to parenting, and the bulk of the responsibility of it for seven kids was on her shoulders. So I wasn't going to be the one to give her more grief. So I decided I would suck it up, and I would go. And when I came home from school that first day, and she asked me how it was, I said, fine. I'm not going to tell her about the graffiti. And she never dug any deeper, ever. Fine was all she could hear. Fine was all she would hear from me. The school handled that stuff in silence, but they weren't the only ones. I handled things in silence, too. I had a fucking PhD in that, because that's how I grew up. That was our house. We didn't talk about anything serious. I just had to suck it up and deal with it. Hey, you're 11 years old, but life is tough. You might as well learn now, kid. So I told her nothing. I didn't tell her about the math teacher who virtually ignored me, then told me I would never get above a D in his class, even though when I raised my hand to ask for help, he never showed me how to do it. He would just do the problem and drop the pencil and walk off. I didn't tell her about going to my counselor about it, and he suggested, oh, you should get a tutor, but he never said anything about the behavior of this teacher. I didn't tell her about the graffiti that had taken such a toll on me. There, there would be nights I would go to bed and pray that I would wake up white, because then all of my problems would be gone. I didn't tell her about the girl who I thought was my friend who out of the blue one day said, hey Alice, your teeth are so white, but you know, they're only that white because your skin's so dark. I kept that all in. I didn't say anything, not to my mom, not to any of the friends I went to school with. We all kept it in. We all kept it silent, like we had to. <clears throat> that 11-year-old girl, she held all of that inside because 
in her experiences, no one wanted to know anyway. It, it was a strange position to be in because it felt like we were all alone. And then I started to think, well, maybe it's just me. Maybe nobody else feels this way. Maybe I'm exaggerating and being overly sensitive. And then one day, not long ago, I was doing some research for a book that I'm writing. <clears throat> and I came across this article from a, an old newspaper in San Diego called The Reader. It's from 2012, and it was written by a woman who had gone to school at Pershing the same time that I did. And right there, I read the article over and over because on that page was my experience, just written by somebody else. And up to that point, I had never talked about it with anyone. If I got together with kids that I went to school with, we would just talk about the fun times that we had sandwiched between all the bad. But there it was, all the things that happened to me, very similar experiences. She talked about the graffiti we would see and the anger that welled up inside of her because niggers go home was always in the air. She talked about wanting to fit in, but being teased by her white classmates because she wore her hair in a natural. Even her family life was similar to mine, and I, I could not believe I was reading this. I felt, in a weird way, I felt vindicated, because up to that point, I had just thought it was me. I, I downplayed what had happened to me, and now I felt like not only could I, but I should talk about it. And also that there were probably dozens of other kids who felt the same way. So nowadays, when I go back to San Diego and I, I see these kids get off these yellow buses smiling in ways that I never could, I think to myself, hey, maybe our group being the first of its kind, maybe, maybe we made it easier for black and brown kids to go to these white schools. And I'm grateful for that. But I wish, I wish it made me feel like what I went through was all worth it. I don't think it was. There's a, there's a part of me that, there's a part of me that thinks that what I went through made me stronger, made me better. But what it did was just haunt me forever. I was always that little girl and still am that little girl who just wants to be heard. And I've only told this story a handful of times to people and when I do tell it, I, I see pity, you know, coming back at me from the faces. And, and, and I get it, I understand it. But, you know, I don't, I don't really want people to feel sorry for me. I want people to hear my story, to hear what I have to say, you know, so we can work through this weird racial divide that we have. The, and I want people to listen the way I wish they had listened to 11-year-old me, that little girl who felt like a ghost, a shadow in the background that no one could see and no one could hear. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and I'm glad you survived. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find us. Thanks to host Beth Norton and musical guest Candy Shake. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.